it's the system that is in some ways for lack of a better word the enemy the the system will exploit not only animals which we all agree it does but also these farmers it also exploits the environment and it it ex- basically exploits everything in its path in order to achieve that triple bottom line hi plant friends and welcome to another episode of the pbn podcast i'm your host robbie lockie on this week's episode, we meet Rajmit Arora. He's an environmental and food economist based in Philadelphia. After graduating from Penn University, Rajmit went on to work full-time at Mercy for Animals as their agriculture economist and is now heavily involved in quantitative research projects. The aim of Mercy for Animals is to end the exploitation of animals for food and promote compassionate food choices and policies. They are an international non-profit animal advocacy organization founded in 1999. Rajmit has a wealth of knowledge and expertise in economics and data science, plus a passion for environmental and animal advocacy. He is also one half of duo Sea Offs, a musical project he founded with songwriter Olivia Price, who he met in 2014 at a songwriters meetup. The pair were inspired to try writing and playing together after discovering a shared love of ambient folk music. Rajmat is a wealth of knowledge and absolutely love talking to him and I know you will too. I've learned a lot from my conversation with him. As always, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on iTunes, please do leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Rajmat. It's a real pleasure to sit down and talk with you. Thank you for having me. In 2019, Mercy for Animals celebrated its 20th anniversary. We looked back on all we had accomplished for farmed animals in our first two decades. And none of it would have been possible without you. So before we get started and talk about all the really interesting things that you're working on at the moment, let's go back and hear your plant-based or vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? So I went vegan in 2015 after I took a course on environmental economics in my undergrad. And as part of this course, I was learning a lot about uh, agriculture and the negative impacts that it has on our environment. Um, and within agriculture, for my like final project, I decided to focus on animal agriculture and do a report on that. And uh, this was also my first foray into environmental economics, which became my specialization later on in grad school. But you know, as I was doing my research for this final project, I stumbled upon cowspiracy among a lot of other you know different media and you know research on uh, animal ag and its impacts. Do you think there should be any concern of us making this documentary? Of course. If you don't realize right now that you're putting your neck on the chopping block, you know, you you better take that camera and throw it away. Cowspiracy was uh, basically the last nail in my meat-eating coffin. I remember there was this moment in the uh, documentary where... Uh, There's this one person who I don't remember his name, but uh, he says that, you know, if you if you claim to be an environmentalist and you're still eating meat, then, you know, you're a hypocrite or something along those lines. And that was uh, the moment where I think I, I really took that to heart, even though I don't necessarily today agree with that stance. It's a bit bit too militant for me, but it's it's what pushed me over the edge. That was that was kind of when I decided to go vegan. It's an environmental disaster that's being ignored by the very people who should be championing. As the Buddha says, good advice grates on the ear. So sometimes we, we don't want to hear these things, but actually in our hearts we know them to be true. So we, we make those changes. And I think, you know, this is, we were talking about this today, the power of media and how it has the ability to unlock these realizations within the minds of people who are perhaps you know almost ready to make those changes, but they just needed that one little push to to get them to 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 make the switch. Let's look at the fundamental problem here. No one wants to talk about it because they're they're membership organizations. You know, a lot of them they're looking to maximize the number of people making contributions. The leading cause of environmental degradation is um, we uh, need to address that as well. It's not up to the Department of Water Resources. Hard to actually target like one thing. 
I, I don't necessarily know what it is. There's suppression and mismanagement of information everywhere. It abounds. It starts at the local level, but then it goes all the way to Congress. When you consider the devastation it's having on our planet as well as the oceans. And we're in the middle of the largest mass extinction of species in 65 million years. And they can dictate the federal policies because they have so much political power. And one of the largest industries on the planet with the biggest environmental impact trying to keep us in the dark about how it's operating. That's the one thing no one talks about. You know, everybody goes around that. Unfortunately, we are no longer able to fund your film project. We had a meeting, and due to the growing controversial subject matter, we have some concerns and have to corral. You're going up against people that have massive legal resources, and you have nothing. A lot of people just keep their mouths shut because they don't want to. They don't want to be the next one with the bullet to their head. So tell us about your, your childhood when it came to food and animals. Like, wh What kind of environment did you grow up in? Where did you grow up? And what was your relationship with food and animals? So I grew up in a couple of different places. I was born in Mumbai, India. Uh, but then at the age of three, my family moved to Doha, Qatar, which is in the Middle East. And I lived there for about 10 years, so most of my childhood. And then at age 13, I moved back to India and then at age 17, I moved <laughs> to the U.S. and I've been here since. So I've lived in quite a few different places. But growing up, I grew up in a Punjabi Sikh household, which is uh, interesting because there's a uh, interesting when it comes to diet, because there's a dichotomy uh, between Sikhs. And so as you know, in India, vegetarianism is, you know, quite popular, right? I mean, it's not as popular as some people assume it is about 30 30 or so of the population is uh vegetarian uh but you know that means that 70 percent of the population still consumes animal uh, meat and so within sikhs there's also this dichotomy wherein baptized sikhs are supposed to be vegetarian that's one end of the spectrum and then on the other end you have sikhs or punjabis who are known for bringing things like tandoori chicken and butter chicken and chicken tikka masala to the world. You have two ends of the spectrum within this one community. And I, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, was on the tandoori chicken and butter chicken eating side. So I, I grew up eating a lot of meat. However, I did, uh, you know, have an affinity for animals. So, you know, living in Doha, anytime I went back to India, I to visit my family, I would, you know, feed the stray dogs whenever I got a chance. Or uh, my family was the first in our extended family to ever have a companion animal. And, it, you know, I've, I always had that affection. And my grandmother, who in early 2000, about, you know, seven to eight years before she passed, uh, she actually went vegetarian because she went to a wet market in India and she saw a chicken being slaughtered for the first time. It's usually my grandfather who would go and make those strips and bring the chicken back home and she would just cook it. But this was the one occasion where she had to go do it herself. And when she saw the chicken being slaughtered, she decided to go veg vegetarian immediately. And I, I always knew this story, right? I had been told this story growing up, but I had never been allowed to physically go see that slaughter happen myself because I guess in the back of you know my head or in the back of any anyone any meat eater's head like there's this like uh, awareness that you know if you do see it right you, you you know that it's ugly and it's not something that you would do yourself uh, so I mean there's that hesitation and like you just you we just detach ourselves from the reality of how the food that we consume comes to our plate. So I, I mean, th that that realization, that awareness was always there in the back of my head. And, you know, while I say that uh, the environmental argument is what pushed me over the edge with conspiracy, it, it was probably a culmination of you know, that ethical consideration, that love for animals, along with learning this broader ethical argument of environmental damage that, uh, you know, finally made me want to not uh, take part in that.
when you make these changes to re- remove animal products from your, at least meat from your diet, uh, was it sort of straight away vegan or did it kind of, was it a gradual process? And the people around you at the time, because you're like me, I also left the, you know, the, the motherland. I grew up in Africa and um, left when I was 17, came to 17, 18, came to England, very different culture, very different world. Um, and was exposed to very different ways of living. Was it a huge culture shock for you coming from India and going to America? Because the food's different, the people are different, the the way people you know live and exist are very very different. How did you adapt? Yeah, so I I did go plant based or vegan in uh, while I was in America, and I think that definitely made things easier in terms of a culture shock. If you look at the westernization of developing countries like india right it's just it's it's so widespread right i mean mostly everyone there is watching you know american television listening to american music and you know um, is very is subject to american and western media to a quite a significant extent and so the culture shock is minimized when you know you've grown mm. up already Exposed. Exposed, exactly. Um, So the culture shock was minimized in that sense. The decision to go um, vegan, I I did do it in phases. I initially went uh, pescatarian for a couple of months, and then I went vegetarian for about a month. And then I completely cut off any animal products, including dairy. Vegetarianism is really common in India. So if I went to my mother and said that I wanted to go vegetarian, right, it wouldn't be as much of a shock to her because, you know, my grandmother was vegetarian and my grandfather, after my grandmother passed in her honor, also went vegetarian, which is really sweet. So, I mean, if I'd gone to my mother and said that I was turning vegetarian, it wouldn't have been, you know, a a shocker. But the fact that I was not going to consume dairy products anymore was like blasphemous, right? It's like, you're you're, you're not, you're not, especially because we're in a Punjabi household. So if you look at like dairy consumption in India, Southern states usually tend to consume less dairy. It's just like not as prevalent in their culture. But the more north you get, right, the more agricultural uh, agricultural and the more dairy intensive uh, the states become. And Punjab is like right at the north peak of the country. A lot of our foods um, are just lathered in like butter or ghee. Most of the like vegetable dishes are also cooked in ghee if you're given the option. Ghee for anyone who's, who, who, isn't, who doesn't know what is ghee. Uh, it's uh, clarified butter. I think that's what they call it. Um, I'm not exactly sure how it's made, but it's it's animal. It's an animal product. So it's like it's like an oil, isn't it? Like a, almost like an oil of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's a really fat rich oil. So yeah, I mean, if, if you look at those things, or if you look at like lassi, or you know, uh, which is like you, you've seen mango lassi probably at a restaurant here. I love the plant-based version. Uh, I love it with oat milk. <laughs> Ooh, I have actually never had that. <laughs> I would be curious to try that. But yeah, no, so so me saying that I wasn't going to consume dairy was like the real shocker. <laughs> and uh, they, they eventually accepted it. Uh, my parents are very supportive in that way. So I have to give them credit. <laughs> How can we expect ourselves to have lives of joy and freedom and spiritual clarity when we are sowing the seeds of the opposite of that? It's almost like some mad scientist, like Satan himself, (laughs) designed these systems that are being used now to raise animals. it, It is absolute insanity. I'm very interested in the connections between the cow, dairy, and Indian culture. There's a beautiful film called A Prayer for Compassion. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, anyone listening who's interested in spirituality, religion, and how it intersects with uh, animal rights and also veganism, I do recommend this film. And it it tells a story of a man and his daughter who travel around speaking to various religious people around the world, Christians, Sikhs, Jews, uh, Muslims. Buddhists um, about the relationship between killing animals and religion and spirituality, and often how many of the world's biggest and greatest religions talk of compassion and kindness, but animals seem to sort of be left out of that picture. 
many of the very religious men and women stand on pedestals or stages talking about compassion and and how to heal the world but then we'll go home and sit down and tuck into a bacon sandwich or uh, you know a chicken steak or something like that so he talks much a lot in in great detail about the disconnection between the religious and spiritual world and the world of animals of you know of who we all agree in, in the, especially in the vegan movement that they're earthlings just like us that they're beings of sentience and compassion who deserve to share the world with us i don't get how you can love everything jesus says and then participate in a mechanized uh system of mass slaughter that involves pain beyond your wildest imagination even keeping quiet and silent about the violence you are part of that violence because there's another passage in the Quran that says that uh, because of the wrongs of humanity there has been much corruption seen in the oceans and 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 on land now obviously india india is no stranger to um, ancient religion that's been around a very long long time what is the connection between sort of cows and dairy in india f- for you because you talked about how your family were pe- perhaps a little bit sort of shocked that you would leave dairy out of your diet but yet in india and the prayer for compassion shows this cows are often routinely sort of neglected and wander in the streets eating plastic and even though they uh, are revered and respected they are necessarily protected or cared for uh, in the ways that they they you, you would expect them to be in a culture that respects them like they do and then and the second part of the question is like factory farming as the Indian subcontinent grows in population, surely the traditional ways of acquiring milk, which is sort of a cow within the family, is no longer sustainable. And that factory farming must be the way that dairy is being produced en masse, right? So how does that um, sit with, with, with spiritual people who respect cows? Like how, how can that system be seen anything other than an affront to you know that respect and that adoration for the cow. Absolutely. I know that's a big question, a long question, but <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm gonna try to uh, tackle it in pieces. the 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 last part of your question, which was um, that factory the factory farming model, must be how India is getting their dairy now, just given the scale of the consumption. You're right in that India. So India is the largest consumer and producer of dairy in the world. However, what is truly fascinating is that India has about 75 million small dairy farmers still, right? And that's a huge, huge number of small dairy farmers. These are farmers who own, you know, three to four cows or something along those lines. And uh, about a decade ago, Danon, which is, you know, the mega dairy giant, a global, you know, multinational, tried to enter the Indian market, you know, and establish uh, essentially a factory farming based model, but failed because it actually wasn't able to compete with the small farmer who was, you know, producing milk and just going locally and delivering it to someone, uh, you know, in their neighborhood. So I think that's really fascinating because they tried for several years and they actually ended up exiting the market. It wasn't profitable enough for them to stay in the country. It's surprising, right? That, uh, the small farmer is still like leading the market. Like the largest dairy company in India is Amul. They're actually a cooperative which sources from several small dairy farmers. And they are probably, you know, uh, closer to the factory farming model, but they only have about, and last last I checked, it was, they only have about 7% of the market share when it comes to dairy. So, you know, that's the largest company out there doing dairy. So, it's it's interesting because you know small dairy farming is still very largely prevalent in India. Yeah, it's interesting to see that is how things could be run because you don't you know in the westernized world in the westernized world that we're living in you always expect everything to be mechanized and automated uh, and that's the ho- you know often that's what factory farming is attached to so it's not just the animals being packed into sheds tens of thousands of them at a time but it's how the the animal products are acquired and then packaged it's all very mechanized and mm-hmm. i think you know there is always this sort of question around ethics and how ethical do you want to be when it comes to 
uh, your food consumption. And you do get a, people talking of this ahimsa milk where, mm-hmm. you know, cows are treated well and they're, you know, loved by the people who work with them and the, the, the babies aren't taken away and that we share the milk and all of that. But I mean, what are your thoughts on that attitude towards animals that we can live in symbiosis with them if we treat them in the right way and that, you know, if we provide them with shelter and a place to live and they provide us with milk, is that a bad thing or or should we really not be doing away with it completely? So personally, I don't think that, you know, if you don't need milk to survive, then you shouldn't be having it, right? Period. Like that's my personal philosophy. If you don't need it, then you don't need to be going through all of this um, justification in terms of ahimsa milk and whatever, right? So like, I mean, if you can have a live a perfectly healthy life without basically stealing the milk from a cow, uh, which was intended for its calf, then you know you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing it. That being said, I think in reimagining the food system, right, when we think about wanting a plant-based world, I think it is important for us to tackle factory farming first and then like look at what the impacts are of smaller scale farming. So, you know, while I say that there is there are so many small dairy farmers in India, there are still factory farms with, you know, thousands of cows in a shed. Right. But they're just not as prevalent as you would imagine is needed to sustain India's dairy consumption. So, I mean, uh, that's that's just my personal opinion, is that I think we should be first focused on those big factory farm outlets and then move and see how you can best help the small farmer. Yeah, because that's the thing. We can't, as the expression goes, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't be destroying uh, an abusive system and then at the same time destroying the livelihood and the well-being of millions of people who have relied on this system for generations you know, we can't pull the the mechanism of the machine out without actually thinking about the long-term effect of it. I guess it's a bit like, uh, you know, a drug addiction. You, if someone has a severe addiction to uh, an opiate, you can't actually just stop giving them the drug, like pull it out of their lives because people can go into shock and die. And in a way, a society that is addicted or reliant, you could say, I mean, I would say addicted because we are, humans are addicted to dairy. <laughs> we are you can't just remove it. There's so many things. And I think that's what makes it so difficult. And I often get very frustrated with many vegans, sort of more conservative vegans who who sort of suggest that it's an all or nothing, that we have to, you know, everyone should be treated the same. And this is where the sort of intersectionality conversation comes in, is that when you are a Western vegan, you know, and you've grown up in Western culture of privilege, um, where, you know, you can go into a supermarket and food is just readily available, you know, it's easy for you to be able to do that. And if you've got a job and money and, you know, but there are other people in, around the world who have maybe have multiple jobs and who are just struggling to survive and trying to feed their children. And their number one priority really is survival, not necessarily self-actualization. So, you know, it's very hard sell to sort of go into someone else's world very different to yours and just suggest that veganism is something that they have to do animals have a right to survive and and be free of suffering but then so do human beings too it's a really difficult time and i think a difficult crossroads for us as a species because we are living in a time where we are annihilating our planet we are in a way cannibalizing our world through our actions but there are solutions right and that leads me nicely onto what you're working on at the moment um the transformation project with mercy for animals I've been dreaming about this sort of thing and thinking about this for many years, about a world where we can help farmers, whether they're small or big, find new ways to make money and find innovative ways to uh, have new revenue streams that are kinder, healthier, more environmentally friendly. Tell us a little bit about, firstly, how you got involved in uh, being an agriculture economist and and obviously then in into the transformation project. I guess I'll, I'll just start with... Your, the point you made about privilege and then go into ag economics and then transformation. The point you made about privilege is so true, right? Because me, you know, sitting here today in America, you know, with a graduate degree from a prestigious American university, right? I have a lot of inherent privilege in what has allowed me to get 
to that stage, right? I come from an extremely poor country where the vast majority of people do not have this opportunity. And so, uh, like you were saying, if people, there are people out there who don't know how they're going to pay next month's rent, you know, uh, expecting them to, you know, go vegan or, or to cut off their only source of livelihood, which might be their like two or three dairy cows that they have is, you know, in a lot of ways absurd, if I'm being honest, right? I mean, I, I just don't think that's a sustainable and or ethical fact, because in for me, being ethical, right, apart from being vegan is also being conscientious towards fellow human beings. And so you need to identify and reckon with their struggle as well. So in identifying with uh, that struggle, I stumbled into this job, uh, which is managing the transformation project. For my uh, uh, master's, I did agricultural and environmental economics at Penn State University. And during that master's, I was researching plant-based and cell-based meats, and I was looking at their prospects in the Indian context. Um, so after I uh, graduated, I was uh, teaching for a bit at Penn State, and um, I just didn't think that was like the best fit for me. I do enjoy teaching, but uh, it wasn't what I envisioned uh, doing in the long run. And so I was looking for jobs mainly either in the plant-based or cell-based meat industries, but I stumbled upon this position uh, at Mercy for Animals, which was an organization that I had admired for a long time because... Um, I was a fan of their more collaborative uh, approach uh, compared to some other larger environment, uh, animal uh, welfare and animal rights organizations that are out there. And so I saw this position, which was for an ag economist, and part of the position was managing the transformation project. I stumbled upon this position on a, a jobs board. It's the 80,000 hours job board. I recommend it to anyone looking to work in impactful areas. Yeah, so the Transformation Project is a project that facilitates animal farmers transitioning towards some form of plant-focused agriculture. So what we do is we act as an honest broker in connecting a farmer that wants to get out of animal ag to anything and anyone that they need to be connected to in order to successfully transition. Now, uh, that could mean, uh, for example, you know, if I get a farmer who is currently farming chickens and wants to start growing mushrooms, uh, the two crop offerings that we have right now are hemp and mushrooms, but say they want to transition to mushrooms, the first stage in that transition would be for them to talk to a mushroom expert. I, I love the idea of a mushroom expert. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, yeah, well, uh, basically someone who's, you know, done mushroom farming for years and years years. So the mushroom expert we work with right now has, you know, uh, farmed mushrooms for 10 years, you know, worked in several different mushroom farms and, you know, really knows how to go about that process. So, I mean, we personally aren't experts in mushroom farming. We can Google stuff. But what the mushroom expert does is basically lay out what goes into mushroom farming. What does a day in a mushroom farmer's life look like? What does the week look like? Uh, what kind of investments will be needed, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like the first stage. And if they want to continue, so they, I guess the next step would be how do you fund this transition? Now, we personally, as Mercy for Animals, are not in the business of uh, actually directly paying for these farmers to transition. Now, while that may be attractive, right, and we might be able to find enough vegans out there that want to, say, fund a farmer transitioning, we don't really think it sets a, a replicable model for this to happen at scale. So for this to actually f uh, happen um, at a larger scale, we need farmers around the country and around the world uh, to be able to do this for themselves. So what we do when it comes to the funding question is we'll help them writing in writing grant applications. We'll help them with finding potential loans. 
We'll help them refinance their current debt. We'll help them in all the technical financial aspects of getting funding. And uh, instead of, you know, just giving them the money to transition. And then on the other end, we also help them find potential buyers, right? Because we don't want them to transition, go from chicken to growing hemp and not have a product to sell. And this is especially important because of the state of animal contract farming in the US uh, particularly. So basically what happens is these farmers take up contracts in which they agree to raise animals on behalf of larger integrators or companies such as Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride. When they take on these contracts, they're paid some level of a base pay and then the majority of their income is actually determined by what's known as a tournament system. Now, the way the tournament system functions is that they're paid on the basis of how they can maximize the ratio between the weight of the chicken and the amount of feed used to grow that chicken. So basically, the farmer that can grow the heaviest chicken for the least amount of feed in their neighboring area, so they're competing with all the farmers in their area, gets paid the most. And the farmer that's, you know, producing the worst ratio gets paid the least. And so they they basically pit farmers against each other. And what this leads to is huge discrepancies in income between contract poultry farmers. If you look at the median income for a poultry farmer in the United States, it's about $13,000, which is abysmal. Yeah, it's that that's yeah. yes, per year. This is this is USDA ARMS, which is their agricultural resource manager. That is shocking. With such low amounts of income, why are people doing it? This is it's it's an astonishingly low amount of income and all that work and stress and yeah. I mean I can imagine sacrifice. Mm-hmm. How big is the farm that gets that kind of money? Like what kind of size farm is is revenue of that sort? When I say this is the median income, right? So what that that's basically saying is 50% of poultry farms that are out there in the world are earning less than that amount. For, for me, the, the, the fascinating thing here, and it's the same with the dairy industry, these people who do these jobs, they've been doing them for probably a few generations, a couple of generations, and it's really perhaps all they know how to do. And they're in a way stuck in these relationships. And you're probably going on to talk about, you know, the contractual nature of these farmers and often how they're bound to these large companies mm-hmm. through huge amounts of debt. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that, like how farmers in a way really dig themselves a hole and mm-hmm. fall in it. Yeah, absolutely. The farmers are, you know, in an in indentured servitude, uh, essentially, because what these companies are doing is basically offloading all the risk of growing animals to these small farmers, right? So the farmer has to, um, you know, deal with if if birds die due to illness, right? The losses the farmers to bear. If, you know, they receive poor quality feed and poor quality chicks from their integrator and they don't get, you know, a good quality bird out of that, the loss is theirs to bear. And, the building of the actual chicken house, right? The reason these farmers are in so much debt is because they take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to be able to build these massive buildings that house the chickens. So because some of the chicken houses that I have visited have been about like 20,000 square feet in size and they house about 25,000 birds in each of them. And the farmers that that own these chicken houses have had to take on like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt in order to actually build them. To add on top of that, right, the fact that they don't actually make a lot of money doing the chicken farming, right, you can see how their life is just there's just so much struggle there because they have this debt to pay off which they have collateralized their homes for is it just a case that there are a lot of very naive people getting involved with these big companies because the num the amount of money that you have to borrow to build the sh- the kinds of sheds that you need to produce the volumes of chickens is it just a case that a lot of naive people are just being taken advantage of preyed on by these large companies and corporations mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, I should clarify, right? The income that I mentioned was net income, and that includes like interest payments and other debt payments that they're making, right? So this is income that they're left with to survive, you know, right. essentially. Which is still uh, tiny. It's still tiny, you know, it's like not a lot, especially if you've got a family or anything of that sort. The top growers in this tournament system often do pretty okay. So there's a lot of inequality in like just farming in general, the top 4% of farms in the US, right? The top 4%, they account for about 74% of US farm sales, while the bottom 76% of farms make a mere 3% of sales, something like that, you know? And so there's a huge disparity in what the larger operators control compared to what these smaller contract farmers are doing. So that that kind of uh, plays into this, uh, the, why the numbers don't seem to add up, right? Because they take on all this debt because the scenario that the integrators paint for them is a very positive one. They'll paint the scenario of if you're a top grower, you'll be doing so well. But it's extremely unlikely that a small farmer ends up being a top grower just because of how the system is essentially rigged against them. It is. I think it's a lack of education and, and empowerment, really. I think people are sticking to what they know and they're, they're continuing along with what was handed to them by their father or their previous generations. But also, I think also people have a romantic view of farming as well, don't they? I think a lot of people have this idea farming being this idyllic life but actually in the world we live in today with the demand at, at what it is and the pressure the economic pressures that it is it isn't like that at all and obviously that leads us on to sort of the mission of transformation you know your idea is to sort of support this facilitation to a plant-based economy and, a, and an animal product free world talk us through some of the successes or what are what are some of the good things happening so far and what kind of things are 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 going in the right directions with some of these farmers so we're working with three farmers right now across the US and they're in their trial run stages so one of the farmers for example uh, is transitioning to hemp and they have planted their first acre of hemp this year and their harvest is like coming up uh, you know next month and so that's exciting because this is actually the first time an animal farmer you know would have uh, transitioned and I, I would like to emphasize that uh, for us as the transformation project the central goal is to tell the stories of these farmers. We have um, no disillusion that we are going to, you know, transition three farmers this year, and then next year we're going to transition a thousand farmers, and the year after that we'll be transitioning ten thousand farmers. Right? We don't think that we, as one organization, can get to all the farmers or transition them. But what we have confirmed is that the sentiment of wanting to get out of animal farming is prevalent, you know, beyond what, you know, you would think. Because a lot of these farmers have realized the kind of hole they've dug themselves into, unfortunately, and want to get out, but don't really know how. Um, so our goal is to tell the stories of these farmers who are transitioning with us so that we can create a ripple effect and enable these other farmers to go out and transition for themselves. And we're here to help out in whatever ways we can. So right now, as I was saying, we have three farmers they are in their trial stages and um, we're connecting them with buyers and we have a, you know, basically building this really broad coalition that can facilitate this sort of change in the supply system, right? So, I mean, if you look around the world right now, there's all these plant-based meat companies popping up and they're doing better and better by the day. You know, there's a real demand and a real appetite for these products in the market. That's important from an economic standpoint because, the the one thing that I like to reiterate always, even to other economists who tend to forget this, right, is that 
supply follows demand. It's not the other way around, right? Like the supply system will cater to whatever the market is demanding. So it's actually imperative for us to create an appetite or a demand for plant-based meat alternatives and plant-based goods of any type, right? That displace animal products in the creation of this new food system. But at the same time, we do need to figure out how we're going to prepare the supply end of things to follow suit in an equitable and just manner. We need to figure out if there are ways in which we can create off-ramps for these farmers who aren't, you know, the bane of all our problems, right? I mean, the farmers are, you know, a victim of the system that exploits anything in its path, right? They're providing, aren't they, a demand? They're not, against just as as a side note, and as a a, a huge personal issue issue I have with many vegan vegan campaigners or advocates or even activists who channel their vitriol and anger at dairy farmers when they are not the problem. The problem is our society. It's the demand. It's the world we live in. Like you say, the system we're all born into this system which has created a demand which creates these unhealthy dysfunctional relationships that we have with nature with animals uh with the world so yeah continue it's interesting to hear um because i think it's it's really important to say yeah i know i completely agree that you know it's the system that is in some ways uh, you know for lack of a better word the enemy the the system will exploit not only animals, which we all agree it does, but also these farmers. It also exploits the environment and it it ex- basically exploits everything in its path in order to achieve that triple bottom line. If you look at the current pandemic and you look at what's happening with meatpacking workers across the US, for example, over about like uh, 40,000 plus meatpacking workers have been infected with the virus and over 200 have died in the U.S. alone. This is extremely shocking because ProPublica did a remarkable investigation recently where they identified that the meat industry actually knew for 12 years that they were at extremely high risk of infecting and putting their workers at risk in the case of a pandemic. They were instructed to take precautionary methods, but, you know, did essentially nothing, you know. And so what you know is that the the controllers of the system, right, will do anything to satisfy their bottom line, which is unfortunately just profits. And what we need to do is essentially expand that bottom line to include all these externalities that are associated with our food consumption. So I'm, I'm going to go back to economics for a second too, because I feel like economics is actually really deeply tied into why profitability is emphasized so much. If anyone's taken like a, 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 an intro economics course, you must you might have learned about the concept of profit maximization. The way they teach profit maximization is that it's the goal, right? Your goal is to maximize profits. That's it. And the way they calculate profits in conventional economics is just to look at private costs or like costs that are imposed to those people who were involved in the production or the consumption of a particular product, not costs to those third parties who are negatively or adversely impacted by these kinds of actions. So, I mean, the idea is that if you start internalizing these negative externalities, your definition of a profit will be broader than what it is right now. You'll actually be considering how you treat animals. You'll actually be considering how you treat the environment and how you protect the environment. That, I think that redefinition of what is actually profit, you know, what does profit mean to a company is essential for us to restructure the system because right now what we're doing is that right with the whole plant-based movement there is a restructuring of the system taking place and we need to be careful in that we don't let the same conventional 
thinking when it comes to things like profitability uh, penetrate into this uh, movement too? So, I mean, I'm sure you've seen how a lot of people have been backfiring at Oatly for taking an investment from Blackstone, right? Yeah, very interesting thoughts on that. I mean, what as a as a man involved in you know agricultural economy, like what are your thoughts on that? I mean, they they need to scale as a company. They want to work with bigger investment funds so they can reach more people and make more product. What are your thoughts on that? Should we be boycotting them because they took shares in a company which has some questionable credentials or is it all a lot of hoopla for nothing? I have mixed feelings about this, right? Because I don't actually think we should be boycotting them. I'm going to tie this back into what I was saying earlier is that I I think it's good, right? That they took this investment. If they're able to take this investment and then extend their own ethical compass to Blackstone and change them for the better, right? That's amazing. And if they don't lose sight of why they got into making plant-based alternatives in the first place, that would be amazing. However, at the same time, there is, you run the risk of, uh, you know, losing clarity when you have investors who are in it solely for the profits, you know? So, it's 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 complicated i i personally would hope to see what you know uh, oatly does in the future because i do think for these products to expand at the rate that we need them to to end animal suffering and to end the exploit exploitation of uh, the environment and farmers and workers and all these people we need to see these transitions happening fast and tapping into those existing distribution systems of these larger companies for example you know Tyson investing in I don't I don't remember if it was Beyond Meat or Memphis Meats it was one of them but uh, you know like we need those distribution systems but we need to retain I would say majority stake, you know, in terms of determining the direction that these companies go in down the line. So I would hope Oatly didn't give a majority stake to Blackstone. I don't think they did. Yeah, it was, wasn't it just? Wasn't it just ten percent? Right, ten percent share. I, I guess. Yeah, I don't. I don't know the specifics. I've just yeah. heard the. Backfire. Yeah, definitely ten percent. But that's that's the irony is, the, and the big question for us as a conscious movement. You know, what kind of sacrifices do we need to make in the short term for for long-term gain? Robbie, I just wanted to add one more thing. Yeah, of course. uh, To the previous point, right? I mean, Mm. what you said about, you know, having to work with everyone, right? Leah, our president, Leah Garces, has been on your podcast before. And, you know, she, she talks about turning adversaries into allies. And I think that's a really powerful message, you know, because... We need to be collaborative in our approach, right? Purism or, uh, is, isn't really going to get us to that end goal. We need to work with other people if we really want to achieve a plant-based, sustainable food system. Absolutely, we do. We have to because the system uh, that we operate within has been around a very long time. It's very rich and powerful, and we have to work with the beast. We have to go go in with the Trojan horse, as I often like to say, and uh, and sit at the table with people we don't necessarily like very much. But I think when we can appeal to people's hearts and minds and show them there's a better, and, and a lot of the time a more profitable way to do it, they're obviously all ears. And you know, talking about profits, I'm really interested to understand what kinds of profits farmers can make, because you explained in detail how shockingly low the income is of the average um, chicken farmer I think you said so what kind of numbers or what kind of like percentages are we talking and increases in revenue when farmers make these switches to plant-based products yeah um, so you know we've talked about the debt that these farmers are under and because of that debt it becomes even more important for us to ensure that the crop that these farmers transition to is profitable we've carefully chosen hemp and mushrooms right now hemp uh, you know doesn't have as robust of a market as uh, mushrooms do but still the going price for cbd and hemp and products in the market is fairly high and so the actual profitability of these farmers, right, depends on their scale of production. So, I mean, I can't give you exact numbers of how much money they'll make because we're still in the process of figuring that out. But 
working with the hemp experts and the mushroom experts that we work with who have been veterans in these industries, have sold, have created companies in this space, we have a good idea that we will be significantly increasing whatever amount of income they used to make because we're considering everything, right? We're considering what kind of debt payments the farmers need to make uh, monthly in order to get by and as well as all the costs of transitioning among other things and how they can get the return on investment that they need in the long run. So while I don't have specific numbers for you, we've uh, come up with, you know, several estimates. Actually, I, I here, let me give you some mushroom estimates. I have those on a spreadsheet. Love the sound of that. Mush- bring in the mushroom estimates. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we, we ran this one estimation of um, what would it look like to transition a chicken house into a shiitake mushroom farm. So the chicken house is like 20,000 square feet. The thing is, you don't need 20,000 square feet to grow a ton of mushrooms, you know? You only need a small fraction of that. So the idea for us is to transition in stages. So when I said that the farmer is doing a trial run right now, he's basically converting one of his little sheds next to his home uh, into a small like grow room for mushrooms. And he's learning the trade. He's learning how to grow mushrooms in that uh, with assistance from our mushroom expert as a consultant. The next stage would be to actually convert, secure funding, and then convert about 1,600 square foot off that 20,000 square foot chicken house into a growing facility for mushrooms. Now, in that 1,600 square foot uh, space, our projections, if you assume a low price point, right, off shiitake mushrooms, a low price per pound is something around $6 per pound. And uh, if you're growing about 400 pounds of mushrooms a week, you know, your weekly revenue then is around $2,400. And if you do 52 cycles in the year, your revenue is about $120,000. That's your revenue, right? You are- right. And that's just that small, that's like a, that's a small, that's just getting started in a shed. Exactly. That's like getting started with a smaller version of these farms. And if you take into account costs, right, your gross profit could be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80 grand, which is really good, you know, uh, compared to what they're in right now. But the thing is, if you consider a higher price point, Mushrooms can go, shiitake mushrooms at farmer's markets. Uh, I live in Philadelphia, and the last time I was here at a farmer's market, mushrooms were going for $14. Shiitakes were going for $14 a pound. And uh, so if you, you know, take that kind of price point into account, assuming similar costs, you know, your profitability increases significantly with that. So, I mean, again, the, a lot of this is situation specific, right? You need to see what kind of markets are around you, what kind of buyers you want to sell to. So, I mean, if you're looking to sell at farmer's markets, you're likely going to get a higher price. But if you're going to sell into a wholesale channel, you'll get a lower price, but you know you might be able to produce a larger Just quantity. More. Yeah, yes, exactly. This is really interesting to me because obviously all this work and all this um, analysis analyses you've been doing, let me ask you this. Is it possible for you to create algorithms that would be able to take data input from a user, say on a web page, whether that's the size of the square footage of the sheds, whether that's the type of crop, whether that's like any other parameters that you could get from the user, and then you could spit out some projections in some kind of sort of loose um, way because I just feel like if we had a play, I mean, I know you've got transformation, transformation.com and stuff, but I feel like if we could develop these algorithms to, um, you know, all these formulae rather than algorithms to spit out, you know, projections for farmers. I just think there would be a really powerful argument uh, and a way for the vegan movement to to have more advocacy towards farmers. So we have this toolkit, this 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 online form or some kind of like wizard where people can go in, put in the size of their sheds that they want to experiment on, and actually get some hard numbers to work with. Because obviously, I think at the moment, I guess you guys have to engage with them. They you either have to send you a bunch of information, you have to run calculations. And then come back to them with some some ideas. Would that be feasible? Do you think? 
This is actually an amazing idea, Robbie. <laughs> I uh, I think uh, this would be a great uh, tool for farmers to have. My hesitancy, right, comes with the fact that we don't want to paint an overly positive picture for anyone. If what if all your formulae yeah. are, un, are just a, the baseline, the bottom estimation? Mm-hmm. Surely, even that is way more than what they're probably earning selling animals. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely think this is something for us to look into, despite you know the fact that you know when you get into the nitty gritty, right? A lot of the decisions to transition depend on you know, the farmer's own situation, right? You know, like, for example, do they have a concrete floor in the chicken house or is it a dirt floor, you know, right? So that's going to affect the cost estimation, for example. Mm, um, that could all be and, built in into the questionnaire, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it could. It could very well be built in. And we've been we've been working on what would be a resource hub, right, uh, for our website where we basically put together a toolkit uh, which contains blueprints of uh, different forms of farming and what farmers need to know in order to transition. That's definitely something that we're building up the capacity for. Right now, you know, Transformation is run by several members at Mercy for Animals, you know, doing it as one half or one portion of their uh, jobs for MFA. But next year, we plan to, you know, expand the project and hire dedicated uh, positions to this project and build out essentially this resource hub for any farmer that's interested. And I think the calculation tool that you mentioned would be fairly straightforward to build, you know, if you put all your constraints and logics in place. And I think it's a great idea. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we would, I would personally love to work with you on this because it's something I'm, I, I grew up in, the, in a farming community and I want to see more of this conversation. I know sort of the transformationproject.org is focused in the US, but you know, if you were interested in in starting the conversation here in the UK and at least having some kind of pay, even just a, you know, transformationproject.org forward slash UK, where we started the conversation and we just, you know, started to see what kind of interest there was and plant-based news could promote it and see what's out there and see if, if there are farmers out there who are interested. We have refarmed, I think, which is here in the UK, which is um, similar, but a lot smaller than I think what you're doing. And I know there's a lot of people who are keen to support this. So I would love to, you know, definitely collaborate with you in some way, even if it's, you know, no matter how small or big it is to sort of facilitate the process and make it easier and, and really share this information in a more wide way because i think that half the battle is is that a lot of people just don't know what's possible so a lot of these farmers are passionate about farming and it's not necessarily they're passionate about farming chickens or pigs or cows they just love farming and they love the lifestyle and i think if we can give them the opportunity to earn you know three four five times more the revenue as well as having healthier lifestyles because i think you know farming animals is definitely not a healthy lifestyle considering the dangers of micro anti you know microbial resistance and all these other horrors which we haven't even got into talking about which is probably a whole second podcast you know we really are like saving people's lives like you know and their livelihoods really you know you talk about how farmers love farming and i'm gonna say something controversial here which is uh potentially controversial that um I think the farmers love animals too. You know, it's, I think they get into, uh, you know, a lot of people might think that, well, if they love animals, why would they slaughter them? And I've learned this, you know, the hard way, but after having tens of conversations with different farmers and, you know, learning the reasons why they got into animal farming in the first place, they do have an affinity for these animals. A lot of these farmers do at least. And, you know, what Refarmed is doing, for example, is amazing because they're creating a for-profit model for uh, farm transitions. You know, they're they're working with farmers uh, in order to help them transition to making plant milks directly, so directly displacing, say, dairy farming with plant-based fa- uh, dairy, um, you know, farming. Uh, they're part of their like tran- uh, transition agreement. Also, as at least uh, that I am aware of, is that the animals be retained in the form of an animal sanctuary, and the farmers, right? This I I, I heard this with. Uh, from Geraldine in a conversation with her, who is the uh, founder of Refarmed, the farmers are actually excited to retain the animals because they love having the animals around. That's that's like why they're in it too. So, I mean, 
yeah, that's that's just something I wanted to point out that there's a lot of reasons why farmers would want to get out of the unnecessary slaughter of animals because it's not necessarily necessary that that's why they're in it in the first place, right? They're in it because it's all they know, like you said. Mm. Well, it will probably leave it there, but it's an exciting time uh, to be alive. There's a lot going on. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, amongst other things, and we're all battling to survive. And, you know, as I said earlier, I believe there is a future for humanity if we can transition to a fully plant-based economy, at least in mostly plant-based economy. I think if we can do this in the next few, you know, decades, I think we will see a bright future for humanity. But if we don't, uh, I do feel like there there is a lot of challenge ahead of us. But that being said, you know, we're a resourceful species and we we always uh, have found a way to uh, to survive. So thank you so much for joining us. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. Uh, if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, you obviously don't eat the pig because you're a vegan. And I gave you one vegan dish, one music album and one book. What would you take with you? Oh, man. Uh <laughs> I'm a big foodie, so the dish is really hard for me. Um, okay, I'm I'm just gonna stick uh, to being, you know, extremely because I've talked about being Punjabi in this interview, and um, so I, there's this dish called chole bhature. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's basically chole is this uh, chickpea type dish, basically like chana masala. I think that's what it's known as in the Western world a lot. And then bhature are these like puffed deep fried breads oh um, yeah they're delicious you you live in the uk robbie um, yes yeah there's a big sikh community i i don't know what town that is southampton or southpool or something something like that which is just like filled with sikhs um uh, but you should go there i bet you'd find good chole bhature but that would be my dish next thing was the book so i'm honestly not the type of person who reads books again and again i'm reading i could tell you what i'm reading right now i'm reading um uh, Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, which is about it's about how to make change when change is hard. So it's been a fascinating read so far. So I'd probably take that with me. And if not, my favorite author is Arundhati Roy. So probably something by her. Album, I guess my all-time favorite album is uh, I Had the Blues, But I Shook Them Loose by Bombay Bicycle Club, which is uh, a British band. Yeah, that, that would be it. Amazing. Mr. Rashmit Aurora, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and we'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, technology, and everything in between.